Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett, and this is our Friday broadcast, and we are one day closer to Christmas, one day closer to the brand new year. So looking forward to uh, what God's going to do in the new year. Today, we're wrapping up our study on what grace does in changing me. You know, Charles F. Weigel was an itinerant evangelist and songwriter. One day, he returned home after preaching in evangelistic meetings and He found a note from his wife. It simply read, I'm leaving, Charlie. I don't want to live the life you were living. I want to go the other way, to the bright lights. And to add insult to injury, she had taken their only daughter with her. That night, Charlie wandered the streets alone, finally winding up at the end of the pier at a bay where he contemplated suicide. However, despite all that had happened to him, he vowed to live his life for Jesus. About eight months later, he met his estranged wife in Los Angeles. She mocked him for telling him of the sins that she had committed. And sadly, a couple of years later, she lay on her deathbed. Her daughter was by her side. Evidently, she was remembering the better life she had lived with Weigel. She turned to her daughter and said, If you know where your father is, please ask him to pray for me and see if God can forgive a sinner such as I. About five years later, Charles Weigel sat down at a piano thinking about all God had brought him through. The music and the words began to flow and he penned the following lyrics. I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus, since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else can take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. The second verse says, All my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms about me. And he led me in the way I have to go. Verse number three. Every day he comes to me with new assurance. More and more I understand his words of love. But I'll never know just why he came to save me. Till someday I see his blessed face above. You see, God brought Charles F. Weigel through his dark moments and transformed him into a beautiful encouragement for fellow discouraged followers of Christ. He can and he will do the same for you when you go through those dark moments. Well, we've learned how grace can change us. We've learned that we are no longer self-centered. We're no longer one who is self-driven. We've learned that our lives have radically changed now that Christ has poured his grace over us and poured his grace into us. And we have given him the supremacy in our lives that he deserves. You know, when I think about how our lives change and we're no longer self-driven, it reminds me of the funny story about a strong man at a construction site. The strong man was bragging about what he could do and, and how he could outdo any feat of strength. He made a special case of making fun of one of the older workers. After several minutes, the older worker, he had had enough. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is, he said. I'll bet a week's wages that I can haul something in a wheelbarrow over to that building 
that you won't be able to wheel back. You're on, old man, the worker replied. The old man reached and out and grabbed the wheelbarrow by the handles, and then he turned to the young man and said, All right, get in. <laughs> well, you see, change comes in our lives when Christ is centered, and he empowers us, and, and he glorifies us, and he's glorified through us, and everything he will have the supremacy. You see, Paul refers to the hope of the gospel, and he reminds us to continue in that hope. Paul said he became a servant of the gospel. The gospel changes me like nothing else can. It changes me from being God's enemy to God's friend, from being evil and living in evil to living in righteousness, from being faithless to being faithful. You see, that's what Jesus does for me. When I think about the Lordship of Christ, Tim Keller compares the Lordship of Christ to what he calls a life quake. When a great big truck goes over a tiny bridge, sometimes there's a bridge quake. And when a big man goes into the ice and the ice begins to shake, there's an ice quake. Listen, whenever Jesus comes down into a person's life, there is a life quake. Everything is reordered. And he's a whole different man. He's exposed to not only just a great teacher, but he's given a great opportunity to let that light so shine. You see, that's what God does to us. When he comes into our lives, there is a life quake. Everything is changed. Keller adds, imagine you had a dear friend who is dying of a very rare disease. And you bring this friend to a doctor. And the doctor says, you'll be dead in a week, but I can cure you. But I want you to know, if I give you the remedy, There's just one thing. There's one thing that you got to keep from your life. If I'm going to keep you alive for the rest of your life, you can never eat chocolate again. Well, you're so excited. You turn to your friend and you say, isn't this great? Your friend says, no chocolate? Oh, forget it. And you say, are you crazy? Christ having supremacy in my life for everlasting life? That's where many people miss the message of the gospel of God's grace. They're thinking about one little thing that they think they have to give up to become a follower of Christ, and they say, it is not worth it. They don't understand they are saying no to everlasting life. They are saying no to the abundant life. It would be the equivalent of me saying to you, I will give you $100. Would you give me a dollar back? And you say, no, I'm not giving you a dollar back. And you forfeit $100. Have you lost your mind? Jesus talks about the worth of our lives and what we give in exchange for our lives. So we're no longer self-centered. We're no longer self-driven. But number three, we're no longer self-deceived. Paul says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you, for those at Laodicea, and for those who have not met me personally. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may have the full riches of the complete understanding, in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And are we exposed to a culture of fine-sounding arguments? Verse number five, But though I am absent from you in body, 
I am present with you in the Spirit, and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted, built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanksgiving. Oh, I love that. Don't you that little phrase? I should be overflowing with thanksgiving. See to it that nobody takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, some of you cannot and will not see significant changes because you are seen as significantly angry. You see, you cannot gain the full riches of complete understanding because your anger is causing you to be blinded to the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As Martin Luther King said, hate does not drive out hate. Love drives out hate. But you cannot receive the message of God's love while being self-deceived by anger. You see, Paul uses a phrase, fine-sounding arguments that deceive. This phrase that Paul uses means to fool, to cheat by trickery, or to deceive. It carries a clear sense of dishonesty, not just confusion. In other words, the challenges that Paul refers to are not complex arguments, but are deceptive arguments. Those which seem to believe or are believable, but they're actually false. Now, Paul, at the time of this writing, there were false teachers running abundantly. They were known as the Gnostics. The Gnostics were attempting to deceive the Colossian believers. Paul's letters were frequently written to prevent any deception or delusion. Now, listen, we are facing the same thing in our culture today. Just because a pastor has a large congregation doesn't mean he's not sharing deception. The size of a person's congregation has nothing to do whether or not he is true or false. And the inverse is also true. Just because something's small doesn't mean it's true. Just because something's large doesn't mean it's true. We always bring it back to the Word of God. Paul says these are plausible arguments, and he mentions these are references of human philosophies. What are these arguments based upon? These deceptive arguments, they're not based on Scripture. They're based on human philosophies. And he's going to mention that later on this chapter. But human arguments, they may appear so wise and so innovative, but they are foolish in comparison to God's wisdom. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, We take every thought and we make it captive to obey Christ. Now, human knowledge often sets itself against God. The wisdom is of great value, as the book of Proverbs proclaims. True wisdom comes from God and His Word, not by human tricks. Romans 14, 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We must, if we are recipients of God's grace, we must not be a disgrace to God's grace by compromising on the truth of God. Paul says, for whatever we do that does not proceed from faith is sin. 
Now, I want to quote the late, great Adrian Rogers, who I heard numerous times when I was a young man. He's gone on to be with the Lord. But he said this, It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. Some of our sins are entrenched in us. Can I take us back almost 200 years ago? Entrenched sins are sins that keep us trapped. They keep us entrenched. As we think about these sins, these are the sins that fall into the illicit sexual desires and the practices and the patterns that easily become these besetting sins. And they almost seem intractable. You know, as you think about all things being possible in Christ, there are some people who say, well, these sexual sins, they're they're different. They're, They're not able to be overpowered by Christ himself. Well, I beg your pardon. My Bible tells me there is only one sin that God doesn't forgive. There's only one sin that we cannot overcome. And that is we choose to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself said, of every sin you shall be delivered. In other words, there's no sin for the believer that can defeat him. Unless we choose to let that sin defeat us, God's power is able to set us free. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have any more struggles, but his power is able to set us free. And it doesn't matter what that sin is. The only sin that Jesus says that it cannot be forgiven is the rejection of the Holy Spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that is the unpardonable sin, those who reject Christ. So we've learned a lot today, haven't we? And we've learned that grace gives us the ability to overcome self-centeredness. Grace gives us the ability to overcome our self-driven tendencies. Grace gives us the ability to no longer be self-deceived. And then number four, if we are filled with God's grace, we are no longer self-congratulatory. We are no longer constantly patting ourselves on the back. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that you can tell a mature believer between an immature believer, an immature believer is always bringing glory to themselves. They're always bringing themselves as the hero of the story. They're always telling about all the things they've done. Uh, They're always wondering why people don't see how good they are. People don't understand how kind they are. It's always bringing it back to them. But as you mature in your grace with the Lord, you'll be more like the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, where he says, verse number 4, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if somebody else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives his credentials. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based upon the law, I was faultless. But whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, I remember when I was a kid in junior church. I was asked to memorize Philippians 3, 2. And I was wondering why I had to memorize that verse. It says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now, I had no idea what that verse meant, right? Uh, beware of dogs? What, what is that talking about? Well, the Philippian Christians, 
were warned about those people that Paul labeled as dogs. Now, unlike today's domesticated pets, dogs in the first century at Philippi generally were wild pack animals. I mean, they were aggressive uh, scavengers and thieves. They would devour whatever food they could find. And we see Paul is saying that's how the false teachers are. Paul says they will devour and they're aggressive scavengers. They're thieves and, and they devour whatever they can get their teeth on. And so Paul says the Philippians were warned up against those who are actually doing evil. So beware of those who are the dogs, the, the wild pack false teachers, but also beware of those who are, are the Judaizers, right? Uh, one particular group that Paul cautions against the Judaizers, and he mentions them also in, in Titus 1.10, these were the teachers who claimed that faith in Christ was not enough for salvation. These people added the requirements of the Old Testament law on top of the gospel. This focus on legalism turned that practice of circumcision into an act of obedience, into mutilation of the flesh. So the dogs were the evil workers, the concision of the people that were filled with pride. They were the self-gratulatory, unashamed, unrestrained, filled with pride. Now notice that word pride. Isn't it amazing? Uh, There is a particular segment of our society that is pushing the pride agenda. Paul is talking about them being filled with self-congratulatory, unrestrained, and unashamed of their behavior. And he addresses them, and he says they are putting confidence in the flesh, but bringing some strong truth in the argument about himself. Paul's credentials put him right there in the major leagues, right? He was dealing with those who had never even made the farm team. So the Judaizers are coming up against Paul. It would be like me taking on Michael Jordan on a game of basketball or LeBron James, right? One-on-one on a basketball team. Yeah, I could be talking a whole lot of trash, right? But I would be quickly dismissed, right? In about two minutes on the basketball court. So Paul does something really unexpected. He doesn't prove himself through self-congratulations. No, he says this, whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, all that I was, that I had wasn't enough, and it could never be enough. He says, the hero is not me, the hero is Jesus. Those who change most are humble and admit that someone else was involved in the process. Not another person, but the person of Jesus Christ himself. You know, as we do this, it's so hard for us to do this because we are so filled with ourselves. You see, when we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, part of what happens to us is we no longer are the hero of our lives. We no longer care what other people think about us. We really only have and perform for the audience of one is we understand that the Lord himself is the hero of our lives. And we can recognize and be thankful for the other people that God has brought into our lives, but we are never the hero of our lives. We say you spell joy, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. You see, those who change most are humble and admit someone else was involved in the process. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary 
climbed to the summit of Mount Everest. He was the first man ever to do that. The man who impressed me most, however, is not Edmund Hillary, but the companion who climbed the mountain with him, Tenzing Norgay. Nobody hears his name, yet on the way back down the mountain, Hillary fell and was almost lost. He would have been lost without Tenzing Norgay, who literally pulled him back up with the cable and saved his life. Hillary lived to tell a great story because of the help of an unknown man. When somebody asked Norgay why he didn't brag about it, he simply said, we mountain climbers help each other. So I want to encourage you, by God's grace, this week, to live a life that is not all about me, myself, and I, but to live a life that is pleasing to God, a life that is purely devoted to Christ. You may have to act a little foolish to do this. Paul said that, I hope that you put up with a little bit of my foolishness, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, please, would you put up with me? He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy that I promised to you to be one husband to Christ. And so he says, I'm no longer going to be self-centered. I'm going to be looking at Jesus first, and then I'm going to look at how I can help others second. I'm no longer promoting myself. Paul says, but I'm afraid that some of you are deceived from your sincere devotion and your pure devotion to Christ. What happened to the Corinthian believers? I think that their success started to go to their head. Pride started coming in. And as a result of that, they looked at their lives and they, they thought they were the catch meow. And, and whenever pride enters in your life, the reason it is so, it's so dangerous is because it's so deceptive. Somebody said pride is like bad breath. You know, the person who has pride and doesn't recognize it in himself the person that has bad breath that doesn't recognize it in himself. Somebody lovingly has to point it out to them. But if we're filled with deception, it's hard for us to receive that admonition. So Paul says, I pray that you will not be deceived as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning and the cunning of your minds. He says that you are being led astray from your sincere in pure devotion to Christ. I don't want anybody to be led astray. I want us to be centered around Christ, Christ and Christ alone. You know, when I think about how God has wired us, He's wired us to live in community, but He's wired us to be dependent upon Him, to be completely dependent upon Him in all areas of our lives. So today, as you look at your life, What is the area of your life that you need to grow in? What is the area of your life that you need to be able to to be totally surrendered to Christ? Kurt Cousins was the quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings, and he has a, a sculpture outside of his house with a very odd purpose. It's intended to remind him that he's going to die. Well, sort of. He says, I'm planning to live to be 90. So the quarterback has a jar of 720 stones, one for each month that he intends to live. 
there at his home. So each month, he takes a stone out of the jar and he carries it with him. He told the ESPN, every month, he's going to take a stone out, put it in his pocket, and think, once this stone is over, this is gone. You can't get it back. It's gone for good. You see, we only have one life to live. The Bible says that our life is as a vapor that appears for a little while, and then it disappears. Only one life to live so soon will be gone. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are you doing for Christ to advance His kingdom today? Are you living a life of humility? Not a life of cowardice, but a life of humility. A life that is marked by sharing and giving to others and investing in others. Well, I hope that you have an amazing weekend. Don't forget to come to worship. This Sunday, Hickory Ridge Community Church at 9 o'clock or 1045. Boy, I'd love to see you at worship this Sunday. We're within 30 minutes of all of the great seven cities of the Hampton Roads. We would love to see you this Sunday. Hickory Ridge Community Church at 9 o'clock or 1045. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have an amazing weekend. If I can pray for you, would you shoot me a text at 252-267-2365? If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.